Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. This is from The National on Friday the 13th of January from the News section. Never seen before, Robert Burns' work goes on display in South Ayrshire. This is written by Jane MacLeod. A treasure trove of 12 Robert Burns manuscripts and a book have gone on display at the Poets' Birthplace Museum. The manuscripts, which include letters, poems and songs, are on show at the Robert Burns Birthplace Museum in Alloway, South Ayrshire, as part of a new exhibition titled Homecoming, which opens today. They were donated to the National Trust for Scotland, NTS, by the Friends of the National Libraries in 2022, following a fundraising campaign to secure the items after a private collection was put up for sale in 2021. Sarah Beattie, curator for NTS in Dumfries and Galloway, said it is incredibly special to show the items in the place where Burns was born and as enthusiasts around the world prepare to celebrate Burns Night on January the 25th. She said, It's fantastic. They have been in private collection for well over 100 years and they have not been seen by members of the public. So for us to have ownership of them and for them to be on display now, particularly at Burns season, is fantastic. It means we can open up Burns and his writing to many more people. Also part of the exhibition is the Burns First Commonplace Book, which was donated by the Blavadnik Honsfield Library by the Friends of the National Libraries in 2022 and was last displayed in Scotland in 1896. The Commonplace Book is a journal the poet kept between 1783 and 1785 when he was living in Ayrshire and includes drafts of poems, observations about writing, people and places and thoughts about his own aspirations. NTS Chief Executive Philip Long said, What we're celebrating here is the public display for the first time in over a hundred years of literary works by Robert Burns that give an even greater insight into his career and life, which had not been seen since the late 19th century. We're here at the Robert Burns Museum in Alloway, where Robert Burns was born, and many of these manuscripts would have been written in this area, certainly in Scotland, and so we named this exhibition Homecoming. We're celebrating the return of this treasure trove of material by Burns here at the Robert Burns Birthplace Museum, where people will be able to come and see this collection. He added, Burns was inspired by nature, beauty and heritage, and his work is of deep significance to Scotland. As the custodians of the place where Burns was born, and many of his most important works, 
the National Trust for Scotland is honoured to add these important pieces to our collection and to share these with the public through our new exhibition. The manuscripts include letters, the poems Donoch Head and The Queen of the Lothian and the songs As I Was Walking Up the Street and Oh What Ye Was in Yon Town. They join more than 5,000 Burns-related items which are in the care of NTS at the museum, which includes the cottage where Burns was born in 1759. The 12 items were part of the Blavatnik Honsfield Library collection, which includes manuscripts by the Brontes, Jane Austen and Sir Walter Scott. A campaign to save the collection from being sold privately raised £15 million and every manuscript and printed book from the library has since been donated to nearly 70 public institutions. The homecoming exhibition runs until March the 12th. This article was written by Jane MacLeod. This is from The National on Friday the 13th of January from the Politics section. Rent freeze to be extended, Patrick Harvey tells MSPs. This is written by Abby Garton Crosby. The emergency rent freeze legislation will be extended as it remains necessary and proportionate for private tenants, a minister has confirmed. Tenants' Rights Minister Patrick Harvey delivered a statement in Holyrood on Thursday confirming that he will recommend that MSPs approve an extension to the freeze on private rent rises. The current rent cap expires on March the 31st, but Scottish ministers can seek parliamentary approval to extend the legislation for two six-month periods if necessary. However, a ban on social rent increases will be lifted from April after the Scottish Government reached an agreement with landlords, including councils and housing associations, to keep rises below inflationary levels of 11.1%. Council tenants will see their rents rise by an average of less than £5 per week, while housing associations confirm talks ongoing to increase rents by an average of 6.1%. No social landlord is consulting on a rate above inflation, Harvey told MSPs. A moratorium banning evictions will also be recommended for extension, except in a number of specified circumstances. It is unclear whether ministers will recommend the cap remains at 0%. Harvey said, clearly there are economic challenges facing private renters and there is not the opportunity to agree a collective voluntary approach in the private rented sector, given the very different nature of the sectors. I would anticipate that it will remain necessary and proportionate to extend the rent cap provisions beyond March the 31st in the private rented sector while recognising the Act gives power to vary what the cap actually is. On social rent, he said, In light of the voluntary agreements that have been reached across the social sector, I can confirm that we will now bring forward legislation to expire the social rented sector cap provisions from March 2023. He told MSPs, that the government are required to provide evidence that the rent freeze is still needed, 
with Harvey adding that the constituents are repeatedly in touch with MSPs detailing their struggles with the cost of living crisis. Harvey added, This unprecedented economic position has not yet changed fundamentally and I know that many households on low and modest incomes continue to struggle. People are facing increased costs across the board and the biggest impact is felt by those in the lowest incomes. Scottish Conservative housing spokesman Miles Briggs condemned the decision to extend the freeze, which is subject to parliamentary approval. He said, It is clear that the SNP, Green and Labour emergency rent legislation is rapidly becoming an unmitigated disaster. Scottish Conservatives warned MSPs about the impact on the destabilisation of both the social and private housing sectors, but ministers pressed ahead anyway. Social rented sectors, I very much welcome, has already been removed from this, but the damage has already been done. Labour housing spokesman Mark Griffin urged the Scottish Government to ensure promised rent controls are in place by the end of the temporary legislation to seamlessly dovetail the sudden increase by landlords. That article was written by Abby Garton Crosby. This is from The National on Friday the 13th of January from the Politics section. Rishi Sunak in Scotland to strengthen relationship with Nicola Sturgeon. This is written by Craig Megan. Rishi Sunak insisted Scotland's NHS is benefiting from extra investment thanks to the UK government as he used a trip north of the border to highlight the benefits of staying in the UK. The Prime Minister, who was meeting Nicola Sturgeon for the second time since moving into number 10 in October, insisted he was looking to strengthen his working relationship with the SNP leader. He met the Scottish First Minister behind closed doors on Thursday evening, before the pair jointly announced millions in UK government funding on Friday. That cash will create thousands of high-skilled green jobs, drive growth, potentially bring in billions of private sector investment and provide opportunities for people across Scotland, Downing Street said. The Daily Telegraph reported that this will involve the announcement of two new green freeports expected to be near Edinburgh and Inverness. But ahead of that, the two leaders will share an informal and private working dinner during Sunak's visit to Inverness. Prior to that, he met some Sea Scouts who he toasted marshmallows with and visited a helicopter search and rescue base on what was his first visit to Scotland since becoming Prime Minister. The Conservative leader said he was looking forward to seeing Sturgeon to strengthen our working relationship and continue discussing our shared challenges and our joint efforts to deliver for people here in Scotland and he insisted the NHS north of the border was benefiting from extra cash thanks to the UK government. Sunak also spoke of his hope that ministers would be able to find a way through and end the disputes which have seen both nurses and ambulance crews south of the border take strike action. Nurses in Scotland have voted for action, but so far no dates of this have been announced. Sunak stressed... 
I have come from an NHS family, so I am passionately committed to protecting the NHS and I am proud that we have invested record sums into the NHS and, of course, the Scotland Health Service is benefiting from that extra investment. And what we're doing is talking to union leaders, the health secretary is engaged in those conversations and I very much hope we can find a way through. His visit, however, comes at a time when the UK government's relationship with the devolved administration at Holyrood has been strained, not only by Sturgeon's continued push for independence, but the potential for Westminster to block Holyrood's gender recognition laws. MSPs last month passed the Gender Recognition Reform Scotland Bill, approving changes which will allow trans people to obtain a gender recognition certificate without the need for a medical diagnosis. Downing Street said no decision has yet been made on whether to invoke Section 35 of the Scotland Act, which would block royal assent. The Prime Minister's official spokesperson said the move is still being looked at ahead of a deadline next week, adding, There is a process to consider it, and then we will be given advice to make a decision, and that's still taking place. Meanwhile, at Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday, Sunak said he wants to work with the Scottish Government on the issue of the North Sea oil and gas industry. But he claims Sturgeon's Government don't want to support the Scottish energy industry and the 200,000 jobs that it produces. Scottish Net Zero Secretary Michael Matheson said earlier this week that North Sea oil and gas production should effectively end in the next 20 years, while Mr Sunak has in contrast sought to highlight this wholehearted support for the sector. He stated, I'm keen to work with the Scottish Government to support the North Sea because it's something that we're all very proud of in the UK. According to the Telegraph, the new freeports will be at Cromarty Firth near Inverness and on the Firth of Forth near Edinburgh. The green freeports are aimed at boosting investment and growth through the use of tax incentives. And that article was written by Craig Megan. This is from The National on Friday the 13th of January from the Politics section. School strikes go ahead in Scotland on Monday after no new offer made. This article is written by Gregor Young. More school strikes will go ahead next week after teachers' unions said no new offer has been made by the Scottish Government and COSLA. Unions met with employers in the Scottish Negotiating Committee for Teachers today, but ended with no resolution. The EIS, Scotland's largest teachers' union, said the next phase of industrial action will take place as planned. It means schools in Glasgow and East Lothian will be shut on Monday. Strike action then continues on a rolling basis within two authorities each day for 16 days. It comes after primary and secondary schools were shut this week as the EIS, SSTA and NASUWT unions took coordinated strike action. The unions are calling for a 10% pay rise while the employers have offered 5.5% with slightly more for teachers on the lowest salaries. Kosler said 10% is unaffordable. 
Andrea Bradley, EIS General Secretary, said, Despite their warm words over the past week, the Scottish Government and COSLA have again failed to come to the table with a new pay offer to Scotland's teachers. Our members are not prepared to accept the repeatedly reheated sub-inflationary offer that has now been sitting around for six months and that is neither fair nor affordable for teachers. In the absence of an improved offer, our members will continue with strike action from Monday of next week in their struggle for fair pay. The EIS said its National Executive Committee will meet tomorrow and will be considering the next steps in the campaign. Councillor Katie Hagman, COSLA spokesperson for Resources, said, I am pleased that we continue to be in proactive discussions with our trade union and Scottish Government partners as we endeavour to find areas for agreement. Strikes in education are in nobody's interest and all parties are eager to seek a resolution that not only protects the teaching and wider local government workforce, but also our children and young people's educational experience. COSLA leaders are clear that given the financial pressures being faced, it remains the case that the 10% ask of the trade unions remains unaffordable and therefore we still remain a distance apart in terms of a settlement. This is written by Gregor Young. This is from The National on Monday the 16th of January 2023. This is from the news section. The headline is Holyrood Petition to Strip Royal Loopholes from Scottish Law's Snowballs. This article is by Steph Braun. A petition demanding the Scottish Government abolish royal exceptions and adaptations to legislation has become the most popular on Holyrood's website. The petition launched by Our Republic has amassed over 6,000 signatures in just over a week, nearly twice as many as any other submitted in the past year. It calls for all details of instances where the monarchy has lobbied for changes in Scottish law to be made public, for them to be reversed, and for any future communications between the monarchy and government to be fully transparent to prevent any such alterations to Scottish laws being implemented in the future. Our Republic convener, Tristan Gray, said it is important for people to realise the monarchy are not simply neutral figureheads. He said, We wanted to draw attention to the secretive ways in which the royal family have been interfering with our laws to their own benefit. While many people think of the royals as simply neutral figureheads and tourist attractions, the reality is that, behind the scenes, they are anything but. News stories this week, from the clear strategy of anonymous briefings to shape media reporting to revelations Charles yet again interfered with environmental regulations in 2019, show how much of an immediate concern these ongoing royal manipulations should be. The first step towards changing this is to lift the shroud of secrecy. A constitutional mechanism called Crown Consent sees the monarch given an opportunity to look over prospective laws that could affect his or her property and public powers. It is not the same as royal assent, which is given to bills to make them acts of parliament. Gray added, We are calling on the Scottish Government to ensure all future communications between the Crown and the Government are public and transparent. Publish all past correspondence, abolish past exemptions implemented on the monarchy's behalf and work to prevent such alterations to our laws in the future. The popularity of the petition has come amid a rocky time for the royals after the publication of Prince Harry's autobiography Spare, which made claims about how the family 
has sought to shape the media reporting and plant stories. Reports said that the late Queen was given advance sight of the Holyrood bills, allowing her to secretly lobby for changes on at least 67 occasions. These included bills dealing with property taxation, protections from tenants and planning laws. It emerged at the weekend the UK government asked King Charles for permission to pass its post-Brexit Environment Act because laws requiring landowners to enhance conservation could affect his business interests. In letters sent in October 2019, then-Environment Minister Rebecca Pow informed Charles this bill contains measures on conservation covenants which affect the interests of the Crown, the Duchy of Lancaster and the Duchy of Cornwall. Part 7. Conservation covenants of the bill applies to Crown land as it applies to any other land. Letters then show that the Prince's Private Secretary, Clive Alderton, gave his consent for the law. Grace said that he feels republicanism is growing in Scotland and now is the right time to talk about the future of the monarchy. He said we have members from parties across the political spectrum and republicanism is growing in Scotland. A recent poll showed that only 45% of Scots still support the monarchy. We think the time is right to have a proper conversation about the future of the royal family in Scotland and the vital importance of the concept that all of us should be equal under the law. The petition can be signed here and will continue to collect signatures until February 2nd. It will then be considered by the Citizen Participation and Public Petitions Committee. That article was by Steph Braun. This is from The National on Monday the 16th of January 2023. This is from the politics section. The headline is Rwanda Deportation Policy to be Challenged in Appeal Court. And this article is by Xander Elliards. The High Court's ruling that the Tories' plan to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda is lawful is set to be challenged. Two judges dismissed a series of cases brought against the Home Office's policy in December following a High Court challenge. But at a hearing on Monday, they gave the go-ahead for aspects of their ruling to be reconsidered by senior judges. The Court of Appeal will be asked to consider a range of issues, including whether the High Court judges were wrong to find there were sufficient safeguards to prevent asylum seekers being returned to a country where they were at risk of persecution and whether the scheme is systematically unfair. Lord Justice Lewis and Justice Swift granted permission to appeal to a number of individual claimants and charity asylum aid. Asylum aid, which provides legal advice to asylum seekers and refugees, will challenge parts of the December ruling related to the safety of Rwanda for migrants. No date has been set for the hearing, and the Court of Appeal may also be asked to consider other issues which the Justices refused permission to appeal against. Claire Mosley, the founder of refugee charity Care for Cali, said that while they welcomed the leaves to appeal which were granted, they would be discussing further appeals with our lawyers. We remain committed to ensuring that no person who has suffered the horrors of war, torture and human rights abuses will be forcibly Deported to Rwanda where their safety cannot be guaranteed, Mosley said. The people we work with in Cali come from countries such as Afghanistan, Iran, Syria and Sudan that have asylum acceptance rates that are as high as 82-98%. to They are people who have escaped from the very worst things in the world and they urgently need our help. The Rwanda plan won't end small boat crossings, it won't stop smugglers and it won't keep refugees safe. There is a kinder and more effective way giving safe passage to refugees in Cali. In April last year, then Home Secretary Priti Patel signed an agreement with Rwanda 
for it to receive migrants deemed by the UK to have arrived illegally and therefore inadmissible under the new immigration rules. Several challenges were brought against the proposals, which were described at the time as a world first agreement and a bid to deter migrants from crossing the Channel. The first deportation flight, due to take off on June 14th, was then grounded amid a series of objections against individual removals and the policy as a whole. However, at the High Court in London in December, senior judges rejected arguments that the plans were unlawful. Lord Justice Lewis, sitting with Justice Swift, dismissed the challenges against the policy, which has already seen the UK pay Rwanda £140 million as a whole. However, they did rule in favour of eight asylum seekers finding the government had acted wrongly in their individual cases. Following the ruling, current Home Secretary Suella Braverman said she remained committed to sending migrants to Rwanda as soon as possible. The UK government has refused to put a date on when the first flight to the Rwandan capital of Kigali could take off, recognising the threat of further legal action. The Home Office previously said ministers stand ready to defend against further legal challenges to Rwanda deportation policy. That article was by Xander Elliards. This is from The National on Monday the 16th of January 2023. This is from the politics section. The headline is UK government seeks more powers to clamp down on protests. This article is by Adam Robertson. The UK government is set to announce a range of new proposals to clamp down on protests, broadening the range of situations in which police can take action to prevent disruption. Major protests in recent years have focused on a range of issues, including environmental issues. In November, for example, Just Stop Oil protesters blocked M25 with supporters climbing onto overhead gantries. The law would only apply south of the border, although many Scots often travel to take part in demonstrations. The government passed legislation in 2022 in a bid to allow police to have more powers to stop disturbances, but is planning to go further with a new set of laws known as the Public Order Bill. The bill was published last year and is currently in the final stage of debate in Parliament. Criticism has come from civil rights groups who believe it is anti-democratic and gives the police too much power. The UK government wants to amend the Public Order Bill before it becomes law in order to broaden the legal definition of serious disruption, give police more flexibility and provide legal clarity on when the new powers could be used. Sunak said in a statement on Sunday, The right to protest is a fundamental principle of our democracy, but this is not absolute. We cannot have protests conducted by a small minority disrupting the lives of the ordinary public. It's not acceptable and we're going to bring it to an end. The government says that the new laws, if passed, would mean police are able to shut down disruptive protests preemptively. The bill already includes the creation of a criminal offence for anyone who seeks to lock themselves onto objects or buildings and allows courts to restrict the freedoms of some protesters to prevent them causing serious disruption. It builds on the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act passed in April 2022, which sparked several large Kill the Bill protests. That article was by Adam Robertson. From the National, Monday the 16th of January 2023, from the comment section, an SNP shift to the left could boost independence campaign by Professor Gregor Gall. Struggles for independence and against austerity will run alongside each other in Scotland for the next two years at least. But can they run and train together in order to become bigger than the sum of their parts? Or, or will it be more a case of never the twain shall meet? This is a key issue for those looking to, for a permanent progressive political settlement in Scotland. 
The rejection by the Supreme Court last year of the Scottish Parliament's right to hold a legal referendum on independence has led to the Plan B coming to, f- to the fore. Subject to the decisions made by the SNP's special conference on March 19th, the next Westminster general election, scheduled to take place no later than January the 24th, 2025, could yet be a de facto independence referendum. Quite apart from the considerable challenge of gaining a majority of votes and how the presence of non-voters may be factored in, the strategy is potentially problematic because it asks voters to put in all in their eggs in one basket, so to speak. Even if voters are convinced that independence is a long-term solution, they may very well have doubts about how much positive impact it can have in the short term. Put bluntly, a vote for independence would not make much of a difference in the here and now on issues such as the cost of living crisis and the lamentable state of our NHS and other public services. Already, Labour, under Keir Starmer, are seeking to lower expectations of what the growing prospect of a Labour Westminster government would be capable of and willing to deliver. That means an opportunity is opened up for campaigners in Scotland against austerity. How well placed are the forces of for independence to take advantage of this? Groups such as the Radical Independence Campaign, RIC, and Women for Independence, WFI, in the run-up to the 2014 referendum, had four great virtues. Firstly, they were independent of the SNP. Second, they saw independence as a, as a means to an end. Third, they defined independence as being much wider than constitutional independence. And fourth, they were genuinely grassroots organisations with mass appeal and participation. If we go back to those virtues, then we can be- begin to reimagine how an independence movement could, look, could also be in an anti-austerity movement, allied to unions and other progressive campaigning groups. Here are the salient issues at hand. Like many other political parties, the SNP is a highly centralised and hierarchical party. This poses a particular problem given its considerable political weight among the forces for independence. Nicola Sturgeon's reaction to the Supreme Court was to seek to restyle the independence movement as a democracy movement. For many, this will ring pretty hollow, not just in terms of the SNP as a party, but also as a party of government which operates in a very centralised and managerialist way. Seeing independence as a means to an end did not mean thinking all problems could be resolved by one one future big fix. It, therefore, necessarily meant campaigning on a range of immediate issues which were economic and social in their basic nature. This was not only to relate the political battle battle for independence to the battles for economic and social independence at the sub-national level, but also to help build the radical forces for independence. For example, WFI discussed what independence for women could and should mean in terms of their relationship to men, civil society and government. RIC and WFI are now barely shadows of their former selves but could re-emerge, or entirely new campaigns and organisations could launch to replicate what was done before. It is difficult to speak of an independence movement at the moment if by moment we mean by movement we mean a mass, popular and grassroots social mo- movement independent of any one political party. Old forces need reinvigorating and revitalising alongside new ones being created. This is where the link to the forces of anti-austerity must come in. Quite rightly, it is unions that have led the way in fighting the cost of living crisis, but the sad and sobering fact is that a few strikes have won quick and few strikes have won quick and easy victories. Those workers and their unions need extra support and solidarity if they are to achieve to achieve such victories.
especially in a situation where Labour, under Starmer, are not anywhere near approaching a ready and willing ally. But the Scottish Government, although willing to negotiate, has also been hard-nosed here. Strikes have been primarily about pay and job security, even if they also relate to the quality and quantity of public services. This means specific campaigns are needed to secure better funded and better provided public services, especially in health, housing and education. Here, the UK and Holyrood governments are in the dock for what citizens in Scotland have experienced. This emphasises the need for the requisite campaigning organisations with mass appeal and participation. If those SNP customers were, as the Commonweal SNP group tried in 2020, to move the SNP to the left, the SNP might be able to sharpen the cutting edge of the campaign for independence by taking up the cudgel in the cost of living crisis and the effects of austerity in public expenditure. The March 19th conference will tell us whether this is such a fork in the road. By Professor Sir Gregor Gall, who is editor of the New Scotland, Building an Equal, Fair and Sustainable Society, Pluto Press, 2022, price 14.99. From the National of Tuesday the 17th of January 2023, from the comment section, how can anyone be expected to trust Weathervane Keir Starmer? By Shona Craven. When I was a child, I didn't dream of being Prime Minister. A drained-looking Keir Starmer declared at the weekend, following a round of probing questions from the BBC's Laura Kunzberg. He had the air of a teacher of unruly pupils, pointing out to them in a moment of exasperation that he would happily be anywhere else in the world and that by not listening to him they were only harming themselves. Starmer had big dreams once. Now he's running on the fumes of duty and obligation, hoping the UK electorate can at least scrape a half-decent grade but realistic about the chance they'll ever amount to anything. When he was running for Labour leader, he made pledges that reflected his values, he says. But since then, three years on, a lot has changed. Of course, it's undeniably true that the past three years have been very eventful, but it feels like Starmer's been leader of the opposition for twice as long, and it's striking to hear a politician all but admit that his values have had to go out of the window. He's now left spinning like a weather vane, trying to earn every vote, while having to caution voters that his big dreams may no longer be affordable, thanks in part to a disastrous Brexit that he must now pretend is only a minor inconvenience like an F in a prelim that won't matter if a C can be achieved in the final exam. It's painfully clear that he doesn't believe it. He's not daft. He wants to reform the NHS while ensuring healthcare remains free at the point of use. His party have some sensible proposals about self-referral options and more radical ones about making GP NHS employees. But he stated last year that there were too many foreigners working in the NHS. Did he even believe that? Or was he just 
earning every vote by pandering to the racist and xenophobic elements of the electorate. Who does he imagine will fill these new NHS GP roles and what their motivation will be? Duty and obligation, perhaps. Good luck with that UK-only recruitment campaign. When grilled about a possible U-turn on scrapping tuition fees once he and his shadow chancellor have crunched the numbers and costed all their policies, he defended his change of stance. He suggests the media is wrong to assume that the public will want a new Prime Minister who, quotes, dogmatically insists that whatever was the problem before can never change, even when the circumstances have changed. End of quotation. This also underpins his stance on Brexit and, in fairness, it does not necessarily follow that a Remainer must become a rejoiner. It's true that while the media loves a U-turn headline, sometimes switching position is the right move. But how does the Labour leader explain his apparent change in stance on gender recognition reform, given the only change in circumstances of the past few weeks is the actions of his opponents in the Conservative Party? It's now official that the UK government will use Section 35 of the Scotland Act to block the Gender Recognition Reform Scotland Bill, and now Starmer has concerns about it too. Simply stating that his own desire to modernise the Gender Recognition Act 2004 to take out the indignities will not cut it. He can't keep dodging the subject by claiming others are using it as a political football or simply parroting phrases like trans women are women, as if that even begins to answer the complex and technical questions about how pieces of the UK and Scottish legislation interact. He might want to start by reminding himself that there is no such thing as the UK Equalities Act and following that that he could have a read of Lady Haldane's judgment from the Court of Session last year about the meaning of the word sex within the Equality Act. You would be forgiven for thinking that a lawyer with Starmer's experience would have at least an intellectual interest in the questions raised by this debate, but the truth is that it's not his in his political interest to fully engage with it, especially not while the ding-dong between the SNP and Tories plays out. No doubt his strategists have assured him that the public will support his position, that 16 is too young to change legal gender, but also that it would be unwise to get into detail about exactly why. When it comes to interactions between the Gender Recognition Act and the Equality Act, don't expect him to elaborate. He may feel he has a duty to save the UK, but stepping onto that minefield is an obligation too far. Asked why Scottish Labour MPs voted through legislation that he now says he doesn't agree with, he pointed out that they tried tabling amendments to no avail. He does not address the obvious follow-up question of why they were then whipped 
to vote through the unamended bill. Starmer absolutely does not want the role of teaching the UK public about gender recognition reform or campaigning for some kind of qualified form of self-declaration. At this point, he is teaching to the test, with one eye on opinion polling and the other on a calculator. Forget values, focus on votes. This article was by... From the National, Tuesday the 17th of January 2023, from the news section. Record high for Scotland's unemployment rate, figures show. By Adam Robertson. Scotland's employment rate has reached a record high, despite new figures showing a small rise in the number of people out of work. Data from the Office for National Statistics, ONS, showed that 76.1% of people aged 16 to 64 were in work from September to November 2022. That compares to the 75.9% which was recorded over three months between August and October, which had been the joint highest since the Labour Force Survey Series began in 1992. Scotland's employment rate was above the 75.6% recorded for the UK as a whole, with the country also having the highest rate of the four nations. According to ONS data, 2,725,000 Scots aged 16 and over were in work in the period September to November, with this total 8,000 higher than the previous quarter and up by 48,000 over the year. There were 92,000 Scots who were unemployed over September to November, a rise of 1,000 from the previous three months, but 8,000 fewer than was recorded a year ago. Employment Minister Richard Lockhead said, The employment rate in Scotland remains high despite the turbulent economic circumstances, including the continued impact of Brexit, high inflation and the cost of living crisis. Lockhead added, The record high employment rate for all 16 to 64 year olds and the continued high employment rates for women are particularly welcome. The Scottish Government's ambitious plans for Scotland's economy, set out in our National Strategy for Economic Transformation, are built on ensuring everyone can thrive in a diverse and inclusive workforce. He said that the updated Fair Work Action Plan, published by the Scottish Government in December, brings together a number of strategies which will demonstrate the Government's commitment to fair work outcomes for everyone. But he added that, despite the high unemployment rate, labour shortages in certain sectors still remain. He said, the Scottish Government is doing all it can to work with businesses and organisations to alleviate them. However, Lockhead continued, the UK Government holds key powers over migration, visas and key parts of employment law, and I repeat my calls for UK ministers to establish a joint task force on labour market shortages. This article was by Adam Roberts. From The National, Tuesday the 17th of January 2023. From the news section. Scottish actor James Cosmo recites to a mouse ahead of Burns Night. Scottish actor James Cosmo has taken up the role of Bard in a one-off performance celebrating the, the nation's favourite poem as Burns Night approaches. The Game of Thrones and Braveheart star has teamed up with Visit Scotland to perform a recital of the Burns poem To a Mouse after it was voted Scotland's favourite poem survey by the organisation. 
It was a close-run contest, with Tamashanta, another Burns classic, being beat out by just one percentage point, receiving 21% of the vote, while To a Mouse received 22%. The survey, which asked a thousand Scots to vote on Scotland's best poems, found that as many as seven out of the top ten poems were by Scotland's national bard with works by Walter Wingate, Billy Keyes and J.K. Annand taking up the remaining spots. Cat Lever, Head of Brand and Global Marketing at Visit Scotland, said, The words of Robert Burns have touched the hearts and minds of people the world over, and Burns Night continues to be a global celebration of Scottish culture. Whether it is attending an event, visiting an attraction associated with Burns, or hosting your own Burns Night supper, there are so many ways to honour our national bard. This research shows the lasting impression Robert Burns and the wider Scots language has on people right across the country, and it's fantastic to see so many respondents share fond memories of learning these poems. They are an important part of our cultural heritage and one of the many things that make Scotland so special. The survey also found that 9 out of 10 Scots have fond memories of learning Scots poems and songs at school, that they could read and listen to Scott's poems and understand what most of the words meant. Cosmo emphasised the significance of teaching Scots in schools. He said, It's so important that our children still read Burns, and that language that is so rich and vibrant can't be lost. It's way too important. It's what brings us together. It has a warmth and a beauty about it that can't be replicated. Burns remains with us because he speaks of eternal truths and speaks to the human spirit and soul so clearly that I can't think of another poet that has done that in such a special way. So keeping Burns and his work alive in the schoolroom is incredibly important. To listen to Cosmo's recital of Tour Mouse, visit https colon forward slash forward slash www.visitscotland.com forward slash blog forward slash culture forward slash scots hyphen language hyphen poems forward slash that article was by aaron burn lees from the national tuesday the 17th of january 2023 from the news section stephen flynn constitutional debate is crisis of democracy by hamish morrison the constitutional debate has become a full-blown crisis of democracy, the SNP's Westminster leader will argue in a major speech today. Stephen Flynn will speak at the Institute for Government Conference on Tuesday, urging unionists to avoid a just-say-no to democratic strategy. The SNP will hold a special conference in March, where party members will hash out plans to fight either a Westminster or Holyrood election as a de facto referendum on independence. Nicola Sturgeon has previously said she wants to fight the next UK general election as a de facto referendum on independence, an option recently backed by Flynn. An alternative option will be to use the next Scottish Parliament election in 2026 for this purpose. It remains unclear whether a pro-yes majority of votes would count as the basis to begin negotiations for independence, or if it would simply bolster calls for a second referendum. Flynn, who became the party's Westminster group leader in December, will give a keynote speech at the Institute's conference in London. He will say, In a functioning democracy, 
the UK government would have accepted the democratic vote by the people of Scotland and agreed to a referendum. Instead, Westminster has turned the UK constitutional debate into a full-blown crisis of democracy. The Aberdeen South MP will continue, Having campaigned for no in 2014, it appears the word no is literally all the Westminster parties have left. But a just say no to democracy strategy is doomed to fail. Not only is it driving up support for independence, but it's fatally undermining any remaining case for Westminster control. No one is asking Westminster to say yes to independence, but moderate unionists know they need to release themselves from the dead end of denying democracy, or they will do more to make the case for independence than any Scottish government ever could do. In response to Flynn's comments, Conservative MSP Donald Cameron said, The SNP have shunned democracy ever since Scots voted to keep the UK together in 2014. Stephen Flynn's comments are an insult to the millions of Scots who chose to remain as part of the UK in what nationalists claimed would be a once-in-a-generation vote. Yet Stephen Flynn and his colleagues insist on ignoring this and then playing the grievance card. Amid the current global cost of living crisis and with Scotland's NHS on its knees, the SNP's obsession with pushing for independence is the wrong priority at the worst possible time. This article was by Hamish Morrison. The National News on Wednesday the 18th of January. More than 100 schools close due to the snow. An article written by Jane MacLeod. Snow was continuing to cause disruption across some parts of Scotland yesterday, with more forecast over the next few days. More than 100 schools and nurseries in Shetland, the Highlands and Aberdeenshire were forced to close due to snow and icy conditions. Road temperatures were below freezing across the north and northeast, and Traffic Scotland advised drivers in Murray, Angus, the Highlands, Aberdeenshire and Aberdeen City to use caution when travelling. But officials said gritters were working round the clock to keep roads safe. Aberdeenshire Council tweeted, Gritters have been out since 5.40am, treating all primary routes, followed by secondary routes and priority footpaths. Please take extra care on the roads today. Meanwhile, a Met Office warning for snow was upgraded to an amber alert for the Highlands and Grampian, including Aberdeen, from 3pm yesterday until midnight. It warned of heavy snow, which could lead to travel disruption, with rail delays and cancellations likely, and a chance that some rural communities could be cut off. Power cuts were also likely, and disruption to other services, such as mobile phone coverage, was possible. A spokesperson for the Met Office said, A yellow warning for snow and ice, which covers the whole of northeast and northwest in Scotland, as well as the Northern Isles, runs all the way through to nine o'clock this morning. That covers the continuation of frequent heavy snow showers for much of this area, so we could see 10 to 20 centimetres of snow, but more likely to be 2 to 5 centimetres of snow quite widely from the coastline to further inland. We've also issued an amber warning this morning within that area, covering from Aberdeen along and through to Inverness up to northern parts of Scotland, not quite reaching the coastline we could have an accumulation of up to 15 centimetres in quite a short period of time. The other element to this warning is the strong winds. This can cause the drifting of snow and potential gale-force winds, hence why the amber warning has been issued.
The Met Office also advised that people keep an eye on the forecast throughout the week, as it's likely more warnings will be issued. It comes after dozens of people were injured after a double-decker bus taking 70 workers to Hinkley Point C power station in Somerset overturned in treacherous freezing conditions. 54 patients were triaged at the scene, with 26 taken to local Musgrove Hospital for injuries consistent with a serious traffic collision. An article written by Jane McLeod. The National, on Wednesday the 18th of January. Opinion. Rishi Sunak is not ready to tackle Scottish independence. A column written by Kirsty Strickland. Rishi Sunak embarked on a blink-and-you'll-miss-it visit to Scotland last week. I think we're a fairly friendly bunch, but for some reason UK Prime Ministers treat trips up north as an obligation to be resentfully fulfilled, like a tax return or a visit to see a difficult relative. Still, credit where it's due. He came, which is more than can be said for his predecessor, Liz Truss. He was here to announce two new free ports in Scotland, and he made it clear he didn't want to answer questions on anything else. Enter STV's formidable political editor Colin Mackay. King Colin regularly makes mincemeat of politicians of all stripes, particularly when they commit the cardinal sin of not answering the question he asked them. In a clip that has been shared widely, Colin Mackay asked the Prime Minister about the SNP's plan to use the next UK general election as a de facto referendum on independence. He wanted to know if Mr Sunak would respect the result of a de facto referendum if he was still Prime Minister after the next election. It's a simple question with only two possible one-word answers. Yet isn't it always those most basic of questions that seem to befuddle slippery politicians? I'll tell you what I'm focused on, and that's delivering for the people of Scotland, replies Mr Sunak in a valiant attempt at deflection. But Mr Mackay wasn't having it and told the Prime Minister as much. On and on it went. Question, soundbite. Question, increasing exasperation. You're completely ignoring my question, which is about the possibility of the next general election being a de facto referendum. Would you respect the outcome of that? Answer, there came none. There was a glorious moment during the exchange when Mr Sunak once again tried to divert from the question with the politician's go-to line, what I'm focused on, and Mr Mackay sounding like a weary dad who is sick of explaining the same thing over and over again, shoots back with, I'm not asking you what you're focused on, I'm asking you to focus on this. It was a short interview, but a very telling one. The SNP's de facto referendum plan is a headache for unionist politicians who haven't had time to think through what their strategy will be if it comes to pass. A de facto referendum is, by its very nature, a high-risk option for the SNP. Where the 2014 referendum was ordered and meticulously planned, this is a far more chaotic route to giving the people of Scotland a chance to have their say on Scotland's future. This isn't a criticism of the First Minister's gamble. I understand why she suggested it as a way forward. There aren't many options available to her, given continuing Westminster intransigence and the recent Supreme Court ruling. 16- and 17-year-olds overwhelmingly back independence for Scotland, but in a general election they won't get the chance to express it and we will lose that chunk of support. The SNP will be hoping that the high-stakes nature of their offering will be enough to motivate those yes supporters who haven't voted in the last few general elections back to the ballot box. 
the undeniable risks that the SNP faces from a de facto referendum also makes the Unionist position more difficult. Unionist parties in Scotland have only two options for responding to the plan. They can completely ignore the SNP's proposal and fight the next general election on the basis that it is an ordinary vote. This would be particularly tricky for the Scottish Tories, who, despite their insistence that they're sick of talking about the Constitution, have based all their election campaigns since 2014 on the promise that a vote for them is a vote to say no to Indiref 2. The other option is for Unionist parties to tell the SNP to bring it on. This would be a gamble, but it's one they might be willing to take, given that independent-supporting parties securing over 50% of the vote is a pretty tall order. The SNP will hold a special conference in late March to allow members to have their say on the de facto referendum plan and how it would work in practice. It's set to be a fiery affair given the conflicting views within the party on the best way forward. A proper, messy, heated debate is long overdue. For the last few years, impatience within the wider independence movement has been replaced by a feeling of frustration. This is a chance to rejuvenate the debate and move on from the tired back and forth about process. A de facto referendum is a high-risk gamble that might not pay off. But if the alternative is sitting around waiting for the UK government to respect democracy, then it's a gamble worth taking. A column written by Kirsty Strickland. The National News on Wednesday the 18th of January. Walking Awards to Honour Those Making Scotland More Active. An article written by Lauren McGregor. Nominations have opened for the 2023 Scottish Walking Awards, which will honour the outstanding people, communities and organisations making Scotland a more active nation. The biennial awards will showcase a diverse range of inspiring walking projects from businesses, councils and land managers to the journalists, NHS staff and volunteers who inspire others to step out. Organisers want to see nominations from all parts of Scotland and all sections of society, including projects that support people who use wheelchairs and other mobility aids. Winners of the 10 categories, as well as an overall Champion of Champions, will be named during National Walking Month in May this year. The awards are organised by Rambler Scotland, Paths for All and Living Streets Scotland. Rambler Scotland director Brendan Paddy said, The number of people walking is booming in Scotland, which is wonderful news for the health and happiness of our nation. These awards offer a timely opportunity to showcase the communities, companies and projects that are opening the way for more people to benefit from the joy of walking. Paths for All, Chief Officer Kevin Lafferty said, I'm encouraging people to enter the Scottish Walking Awards to recognise the fantastic work happening in Scotland to make walking and wheeling accessible to everyone. Collectively, we can showcase the transformative role walking plays in reducing health inequalities, lowering carbon emissions and improving the environment. Living Street Scotland director Stuart Hay said, In the two years since the first Scottish Walking Awards, we've seen so many projects flourishing in communities to make sure everyone has the opportunity to walk and experience safe and enjoyable walking environments. We want to celebrate these projects and the vitally important role of walking essential everyday journeys for the well-being of individuals and communities. 
Promoting walking is particularly important in light of stress and hardship in society brought about by the cost-of-living crisis. We want to celebrate all the fantastic work that's going on all over the country in areas such as social housing, healthcare, community organisations, workplaces and local authorities. Anyone can make a 250-word nomination for themselves, an organisation, business or person who they think have done great work using a simple online form at pathsforall.org.uk forward slash Scottish Walking Awards. The deadline is March the 19th and winners will be selected in April. The overall winner of the first ever Scottish Walking Awards in 2021 was Fife charity worker Magdalena Augustin Ligas. This recognised her work to help migrants boost their health, social life and spoken English through the Soul Sisters Group Walks project. An article written by Lauren McGregor. The National News on Wednesday the 18th of January. Warning as police force sacks rapist. An article written by Jane McLeod. Home Secretary Suella Braverman has warned more shocking cases involving police officers could emerge following one's monstrous campaign of abuse. She urged the Metropolitan Police and other forces to double down on their efforts to root out corrupt officers in a bid to restore public trust. Ms Braverman told MPs this could result in more cases emerging as efforts continue to reform vetting processes to stop the wrong people joining the police. Serving Metropolitan Police Officer David Carrick was officially sacked from the force yesterday after he was unmasked as one of the UK's most prolific sex offenders. The 48-year-old, once a highly trusted armed officer in the Parliamentary and Diplomatic Protection Command, admitted 49 criminal charges, including 24 counts of rape against 12 women over an 18-year period. Making a common statement, Ms Braverman said, Monday was a dark day for British policing and the Metropolitan Police, as an officer admitted being responsible for a monstrous campaign of abuse. I'm sure the whole House will want to join me in expressing my sympathy to the victims and thank them for their courage in coming forward. It's intolerable for them to have suffered as they have. For anyone to have gone through such torment is harrowing, but for it to have happened at the hands of someone entrusted to keep people safe is almost beyond comprehension. Ms Braverman said she discussed Mr Carrick's case with Metropolitan Police Commissioner Sir Mark Rowley on Monday and she had been encouraged by the action he's taken so far. She told MPs, This effort is being spearheaded by a new anti-corruption and abuse command, but there is still some way to go to ensure that the force can command the trust of the people it serves. It's vital that the Metropolitan Police and other forces double down on their efforts to root out corrupt officers. This may mean more shocking cases come to light in the short term. It's a matter of the utmost importance that there are robust processes in place to stop the wrong people joining the police in the first place, which is why the government has invested in improving recruitment processes and supporting vetting as part of over £3 billion that we have provided for the Police Uplift Programme. I expect this work to continue at pace and for all Chief Constables to prioritise delivery of the recommendations made by the Police Inspectorate's recent report on vetting, counter-corruption and misogyny. 
Labour Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper said ministers have failed to heed repeated calls for reform of police vetting and standards. She said, We have to face up to the further evidence that this case has brought up of appalling failures in the police vetting and misconduct processes that are still not being addressed by the government and are not being addressed in this statement. I would say to the Home Secretary that given the scale of the problems, not just in this case, but in previous cases as well, her statement is very weak and it shows a serious lack of leadership on something that is so grave and affects confidence in policing as well as serious crimes. An article written by Jane McLeod. Recorded from the National on the 18th of January 2023. From this culture section, recorded by Amy. Bruce Fumi rejects invite to Burns Night with Rishi Sunak by Xander Elliards. A Scots comic has rejected an invitation to celebrate Burns Night with the Prime Minister saying the billionaire Tory PW star star should pay the nurses instead. Bruce Fumi, a Perthshire-based comic and speaker known for his videos on Scottish history and culture, spoke out about the invite to number 10 on his Twitter feed. Sharing a video, he read, The Prime Minister invites Bruce Fumi to a reception to celebrate Scottish culture at 10 Downing Street on Burns Night, Wednesday 25th of January 2023. I responded by saying, of course he does, because the Prime Minister invites me to Downing Street at the last moment all the time. This morning, I responded, received a return email assuring me that this was a genuine invitation, so here's my RSVP. Pay the nurses, you billionaire Tory TW star star, he finished, accompanying his words with the middle finger. Fumi's video was praised by his local MP, the SNP's Pete Wishart. He wrote, Fantastic Bruce wouldn't expect anything other than that response. Did you think of going just so you could say that in person, another user added. Fumi, who's who has one Scottish and one Ghanaian parent, established his credentials on the Bard with a 2006 show about Tamil Shanter. Closing with a rendition of Rabbi Burns' great narrative poem, the show won glowing reviews and was rebooted in 2011 for the Edinburgh Fringe. Other shows of his, such as Alba, Scotland, The Origins, or Macbeth, without the Shakespeare bollocks, have also focused on Scottish history and culture. His YouTube channel, which also focuses on topics, Scotland, History Tours has some 170,000 subscribers. He was named Scottish Comedian of the Year in 2014. That article was by Xander Elliards. Recorded from the National on the 18th of January 2022. From the Culture section. Recorded by Amy. Otherland's Music Festival hits 2023 lineup with Cryptic Clues. By Kara Moet. A Perthshire Music and Arts Festival has dropped cryptic teasers hinting at its lineup of performers. The Otherlands Festival posted a series of clues to encourage festival goers to guess the artists that will be appearing. A light box bearing the phrase, everything is not as it seems, has been recorded in various iconic locations around the country, including Glencoe, Carlton Hill, Glenfinnan Viaduct and Queensferry Crossing. The videos posted to the festival's social media accounts feature a cryptic background track serving as an indicator for who attendees can expect to perform. Interactive posters have also appeared across Glasgow, Edinburgh, Manchester and London, presenting a QR code that directs to a webpage with lyrical clues. The event hosted at Scone Palace will showcase a variety of entertainers across five stages throughout the three-day camping retreat. This is the second year the festival will be taking place, 
having welcomed international artists including Jamie XX, DJ Seinfeld, Honey Dijon and homegrown talent Yosef to the stage last year. The event is presented by Scottish promoters Fly. Festival director Tom Ketley said we are delighted to be launching the 2023 edition of Otherland's Music and Arts Festival. Our debut year exceeded all expectations and we can't wait to share what we have in store for this year. Reflecting the adventurous ethos of the festival, we're excited to see who follows the clues to guess the first names confirmed. Otherlands has declared that Phase 1 acts will be announced on Wednesday, January 25th. The Art and Musical Festival will take place between August 11th to 13th. The event is offering exclusive early access to attendees who sign up at their website www.otherlandsfestival.com The article was by Kara Mowat. From the National, Thursday the 19th of January 2023, from the news section, counter-protests planned with Rosie Posey Parker Group heading to Glasgow. Article by Xander Eliards. The gender-critical campaign group, which caused controversy after a speaker at their event, quoted Adolf Hitler to attack trans rights, has said it will be protesting in Scotland. A counter-protest has been organised by one LGBT plus group after Standing for Women, the group run by the controversial activist Posey Parker, real name Kelly J. Keane, announced it would be demonstrating in Glasgow. Keane wrote on Twitter, Fancy telling everyone what you think of women's rights in hashtag Scotland? Fed up with at sign Nicola Sturgeon and her gang of misogynists? Join us on the 5th of February. At an event which Keane's group organised in Newcastle on January the 15th, Speaker Lisa Morgan was videoed quoting Hitler to attack trans lights. She said, Do you know the big lie? The big lie was first described by Adolf Hitler in Mein Kampf. The big lie is such a big lie that ordinary people like us think, well, that can't be a lie because I would never tell such a big lie as that. We only lie in small ways. The big lie, well, there is one big lie going on and it was begun by men in the early part of the 20th century. It began when they had an erotic fantasy and they decided they were going to sell us the big lie. And what is this big lie? The big lie is that trans women are women. But they're not, are they? They're men. Cabaret Against the Hate Speech, a Scottish LGBT collective, has said they will be organising a counter-protest when Keane's group appears in Glasgow. A Cath spokesman told The National she was using Nazi theory, the big lie which is what they used against the Jews, to justify her transphobia. At no point did anybody on Keane's team or Keane challenge that. No one in the group did anything afterwards. They didn't apologise, they were actually trying to justify it. I really don't know what else you can say. It's just beyond disgusting. These arguments are false and misleading because if there were any threats to women at all with the GRR bill, why couldn't trans women be included in the conversation? If your concern is that predators will get into single-sex spaces, why aren't you including trans women to be protected also? It's transphobia under the guise of safeguarding. The spokesperson said they would be protesting against Keane and her group who they said is touring the UK, the USA, Australia and New Zealand, spreading lies and misinformation against the trans community, 
painting them as deviants, predators and a danger to women and children. With everything that's happened with the GRR bill right now in particular, it's maybe emboldened her to come to Scotland, they added. Cabaret against the hate speech were presents at protests outside the Scottish Parliament last Thursday, which saw gender-critical campaigners brand them all F, expletive-deleted, ing, child molesters and paedophiles. In response, the group sang and danced to the Rocky Horror classic Time Warp. A spokesperson told The National that their goal was to sing, celebrate and challenge hate. We uplift each other with the music that we love to show the people that hate us so much that we are just like them, they said. We also celebrate our lives and our joy at being LGBT plus people through the music that we love to show we are not afraid of being afraid of, of or feared. Our goal is simply to be a positive presence in the space and to show that hate is never tolerated, in Scotland in particular. I don't think a lot is done when everyone is just shouting. Haters won't listen to any reason, so you're wasting your voice. So we thought it would be a great idea to just go along and sing and celebrate and challenge them with their hate. What happened with us at the Scottish Parliament was they were holding up these terrible signs with horrible things written on them and shouting terrible things at us, but they couldn't help but dance along to the music we were singing, bopping to the beat. The group is hoping for a repeat performance of their counter-protest when Keane's Standing for Women appear in Glasgow on Sunday, February the 5th. Their demonstration is planned for midday to 2pm and is billed as being somewhere near Queen Street Station. Standing for Women were approached for comment. And that article was written by Xander Eliards. From the National, Thursday the 19th of January 2023, from the news section, Edinburgh Torchlight Procession to Holyrood to take place on Brexit Day. This article is an exclusive by Laura Pollock. A striking torchlight procession will lead protesters to a rally at the Scottish Parliament to mark the third anniversary of Scotland's forced removal from the EU. The procession, which is expected to make a stunning impact in the darkness, will march through Holyrood Park lit by torches and flares used in the Edinburgh Hogmanay celebrations. Campaign group Time for Scotland has also announced new speakers for its Lights On rally at Holyrood, including co-leader of the Scottish Greens, Lorna Slater. The Circular Economy Minister said Scots can prove Alistair Jack wrong by turning up in droves on Brexit Day. The call for Yes supporters to gather again at Holyrood in a fortnight comes in reference to the Scottish Secretary's claim that there's no desire for EU membership in Scotland, despite polls that show 72% of Scots want to rejoin. The fully stewarded torchlight procession will assemble at Pollock Halls of Residence from 5pm and set off at 5.30pm down the Galloping Glen of Holyrood Park towards the rally at the Parliament, which starts at 6pm. Torches for the Holyrood Park procession will be available to buy online or on the night. The organisers ask the public to also bring electric lights too, as the torches extinguish after about 45 minutes of use. There will be a steel bin for their disposal at Holyrood, and stewards will be present to ensure safety along the procession route. The handheld torches and flares are often used in Edinburgh's Hogmanay celebrations and, according to Leslie Riddock, co-organiser 
at time for Scotland, the procession will have a stunning impact in the darkness. She added, It will give Yesers the chance to walk together in solidarity with EU citizens, students and others, harmed by Brexit and ignored by the main Westminster political parties. Time for Scotland, Yes for EU and Believe in Scotland are hosting coordinated action across Scotland. The Edinburgh event will act as a focal point for other rallies and activity. Yes for EU is planning a short but visually striking action to expose three years of Brexit darkness outside the UK government hub slash Queen Elizabeth House on January the 25th at 1pm. Meanwhile, Believe in Scotland's plans to project pro-Europe and pro-independence messages onto prominent buildings. Six other events have also been organised across Dundee, Dumfries and Galloway, Angus, Perth and Dunbar, and there may once again be solidarity gatherings in European capital cities. Yes groups are encouraging members to put lights on in their local landscape, similar to images seen on the Supreme Court verdict day, and signs in their windows on Brexit night. The National's Managing Editor, Stuart Ward, said, We know many of our readers will be at the Time for Scotland event or supporting it in spirit, and we want to do what we can, we can to help, too. Brexit is a plain-to-see example of how Westminster can inflict huge damage in our lives against her will. Keep an eye out on our pages and website for more information on that. And that article was an exclusive by Laura Pollock. From the National, Thursday the 19th of January 2023, from the news section, Jacinda Ardern announces shock resignation as New Zealand Prime Minister. Story by Adam Robertson. Jacinda Ardern has announced her shock resignation as New Zealand Prime Minister, saying she no longer has enough in the tank to do the role justice. On Thursday, Ardern told reporters her last day would be no later than February the 7th. In a speech at the New Zealand Labour Party's annual caucus meeting, the 42-year-old said it was time to step down. Ardern said, I'm leaving because, with such a privileged role comes responsibility. The responsibility to know when you are the right person to lead and also when you are not. I know what this job takes. And I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. It's that simple. The outgoing Prime Minister, who was elected to the role at the age of 37 in October 2017, made history as the world's youngest female head of government. The next year, Arden made history again by giving birth while in office, making her the world's second elected head of government to do so. With Thursday's announcement, Ardern called for a general election at October 14. She said she'd given her absolute all during nearly six years in office, but did not have the reserve to serve another term. Ardern had faced a tough election campaign this year. Her Liberal Labour Party won re-election two years ago, in a landslide of historic proportions, but recent polls have put her party behind its Conservative rivals. Ardern was lauded globally for her country's initial handling of the coronavirus pandemic after New Zealand managed for months to stop the virus at its borders. But that zero-tolerance strategy was abandoned once it was challenged by new variants and vaccines became available. 
She faced tougher criticism at home than the strategy was too strict. Ardern in December announced a Royal Commission of Inquiry would look into whether the government made the right decisions in battling COVID-19 and how it can be better prepared for future pandemics. Its report is due next year and that article was written by Adam Robertson. From the National, Thursday the 19th of January 2023, from the news section, Loch Lomond and the Trossachs National Park aims to finish first phase. Story by Kara Mowat. A popular Scottish beauty spot receiving more than £2 million in investment is moving ahead this month with improvements ahead of another busy tourist season. Loch Lomond and the Trossachs National Park will be subject to a number of renovations, with the National Park Authority's programme of investment completing its first phase with a makeover for landmarks and visitor facilities. The park's iconic attractions of Conic Hill, Bracklin Falls and Tarbert Pier picnic site will all undergo a revamp just before the park's busiest months. The National Park saw unprecedented numbers of visitors throughout the COVID-19 pandemic and numbers remained high in 2022 as foreign tourists as well as locals returned. Conic Hill, near Barmaha, received a £900,000 construction package dedicated to enhancing the degraded walking path. At Bracklin Falls in Calendar, a replacement bridge is being installed alongside safety barriers, benches and information displays ahead of the peak visitor spell this summer. Over 70,000 sightseers frequent the spot every year and the new bridge will provide a viewing platform for, picture of, for the picturesque waterfalls. Additionally, a master plan for developments in Tarbot has submitted proposals to make improvements to the village's most popular sites. Accessibility for transport is the main focus of these proposals, including improved cycling routes, electric vehicle charging points, and a sustainable travel hub, as well as an overall upgrade to the main car park to encourage a better flow for coaches and shuttle buses. In years to come, helicopter access for, for mountain rescue, space for community events, construction on the pier, and visitor facilities including a cafe and toilets are on the books for Tarbot. Stuart Mearns, director of place at Loch Lomond and the Trossachs National Park, said, The National Park is one of Scotland's most popular visitor destinations and... Alongside ongoing work to support visitors, land managers and communities during the peak season, we are developing longer term plans to improve visitor services and infrastructure. Beyond these three projects, we continue to review priorities for future investment throughout the park and for ways we can encourage and collaborate with partners to upgrade their visitor sites. In that article was written by Kara Mowat. From the National... Thursday the 19th of January 2023, from the news section. More than 80% of readers trust local news as audiences grow. This article is by Joshua Cero. New data has revealed that 40 million people read local news in newspapers and online every month. The research from JICREG Trust Local also comes as a news survey from Newsworks slash one poll shows that 81% of people agree that they trust news and information published in their local newspapers and websites, a rise of 7% since 2018. 
Publishers have called on advertisers to divert more spend into trusted local media as a freedom of information request shows government ad spend with the tech platforms dwarf spend on local news media despite its huge reach and high levels of public trust. NMA Chief Executive Owen Meredith said Local news media is highly trusted and reaches huge audiences in communities right across the UK. A powerful combination for advertisers large and small. As one of the largest advertisers in the UK, government must urgently divert a much higher proportion of ad spend to local news media, which delivers so much benefit to the public through its investment in trusted local journalism. Audiences spiked during the coronavirus pandemic as the local news sector played a critical role in keeping communities informed, both through local journalism and advertising campaigns, such as All Together, a major ad and branded content campaign with government. GICREG Chief Executive Keith Donaldson said, The trend of strong growth for local media's digital audiences has continued in recent years, with a large spike during the coronavirus pandemic, as lockdowns caused people to spend more time online. In line with other media, local news media has now settled back to a more normal pattern in 2022, retaining the vast majority of new audiences gained during the pandemic. It's very clear that readers are even more engaged with content which they know they can trust and rely on. Craig Smith, Group M Trading Director, said, At a time of economic volatility, it is more important than ever for advertisers and media agencies to make the wisest possible choices when allocating media spend. As a highly trusted platform with growing scale, Local media ticks all of the boxes for boosting businesses. Advertisers and media agencies must ensure that they are making full use of this unique and powerful medium. GICREG audiences are calculated by RSMB using a combination of PAMCO, Comscore and audited circulation data. Governed by a board of representatives from the News Media Association, ISPA and the IPA, GICREG is a joint industry currency used by all major publishers and communications agencies in the UK. And that article was written by Joshua Serrell. From the National Thursday the 19th of January 2023 From the news section Free Jaggy Rishi Sunak must act to free Jagtar Singh Johal, says SNP MP. Report by Ross Hunter an SNP MP will call on the UK government to urgently act on the imprisonment of his Western Partnership constituent, Jagtar Singh Johal, who has been detained in India for more than five years. Martin Doherty Hughes MP will use a general debate at Westminster to call for Johal's immediate release, stating that the legal case around his arbitrary detention is now beyond doubt. Despite Boris Johnson previously acknowledging the arbitrary detention of Johal, also known as Jaggy, and Liz Trust meeting with the family last year, Rishi Sunak has yet to reach out since becoming Prime Minister. Jaggy was detained under India's anti-terrorism laws following his arrest on November 2017, accused of helping fund a Sikh and Hindu assassination plot, something he strongly denies. The UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention has determined that Johal's detention lacks legal basis 
was based on discriminatory grounds owing to his Sikh faith and his status as a human rights defender and that he was subjected to torture. International human rights groups Repeve and Redress have called on the UK government to intervene urgently in the case, citing concerns that Johal faces trumped-up political charges carrying the death penalty. Speaking ahead of the debate, Dr Hughes said, My constituent Jagtar's case is turning into one of the most prominent miscarriages of justice of our time. After five years of incarceration in India without trial, believed tortured, this young Scot from Dumbarton is at risk of facing the death penalty. The UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention has made clear that Jagtar's detention lacks legal basis and that he has been subjected to torture. This cannot continue. The UK government needs to catch up with the legal consensus and urgently change its strategy. We witnessed firsthand through the case of Nazisin Zaykar Ratcliffe and Anushir Ashuri that the UK government can bring their people home. We must see a similar approach with Mr Johal. Jaitar Singh Johal and his family have suffered for too long. It's time to bring him home. And that article is by Ross Hunter. And that was this week's The National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.